Well, good morning, you guys. Hope you guys have had a good weekend. I don't know about you guys, but I am a creature of routine. Uh, every morning, I kind of have a little bit of a routine. So I wake up. Uh, first thing for me is a shower, uh, then a gigantic mug of coffee. I get quite frou-frou with my coffee. So a lot of milk, got a lot of coffee just to get there. Um, and then for me, I typically will try to hunker down, get a little slight breakfast, a little time of the word. But for the month of February, there's been something new added to my routine. Um, this something new may bring many of you guys to judge me, but I'm just going to throw it out there because I want to be vulnerable. But uh, for the month of February now, every morning, not only do I have a little bit of cup of coffee, not only do I have cereal, but I go squirrel hunting. Uh, you have to understand for me that uh, for the month of January, something began to happen that uh, has, for me, led to an all-out assault and war on squirrels. Um, in our house, uh, our bedroom, uh, we have a two-story house, and our bedroom is right below uh, our Carolina Little Girls Nursery. Between the two floors, right, is kind of a subfloor area, and for whatever reason, the month of January, squirrels found a way to get in there. I don't know how they were getting in our house, but they were running right between the two floors. And so every morning at about 7 o'clock, right as we're stirring awake, these squirrels would be just doing a little track, a little race around, right around. And it's kind of freaky right above your head to hear squirrels, right? Um, and so we had critter control come out. And, and for the last month, we've spent all kinds of money sealing up the exterior of our house and trying to trap these freaking squirrels in our attic, all right? Um, and we are, and I am, absolutely fed up with it. So on my birthday, February 4th, note to all of you, February 4th, my birthday, uh, my in-laws decided that a great fitting gift for me would be an assault pellet rifle, all right? Uh, and so they went to Academy, they bought this rifle gun for me. I don't know if this is illegal that I have this without a license, so don't report me, but I have this rifle, all right? And so every morning now I look for squirrels and I go after them. And I will tell you, this Sunday morning has been a morning unlike any other because I hit my first squirrel, all right? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Now, let me kind of do away with a few myths, okay? First of all, some of y'all may be wondering why in the world, whatever picture you have of a pastor before a sermon on a Sunday morning, whatever you picture probably doesn't involve squirrel hunting, right? I woke up early, all right? They got plenty of time prayer, plenty of time of preparation, but it was a delightful morning. Second, second myth, let me kind of get rid of. I'm not redneck, okay? I am as city boy and as city-fied as they come. I don't like to camp. I don't like to hike. I like indoors. I like showers and I like internet. I am city boy, all right? Third thing, let me get out of the way, third myth to kind of remove for you guys, and that's this. I love animals, all right? I am not an animal hater. In fact, uh, at our college staff, the other college pastor that's at Anderson, the inside joke that runs over and over again is that he is anti-dog. And so he will use dog illustrations, but down deep we all know that he hates dogs even though he loves to make dog illustrations, all right? I am not anti-animal. I love all animals. In fact, growing up we had a dog, a rabbit, and even a bird all living in our house at one time. That's also why the rabbit died. The dog chased it, had a heart attack, and died in our backyard. That's neither here nor there either. But I love animals, okay? So for me, I am welcome to all animals, but one particular animal I don't want in or around my home, and I've declared an all-out assault and war upon it. Squirrels. If you're a squirrel, the message is out as of this morning, time to run, all right? Stay away from my house, okay? In many regards, why am I sharing that? In many regards, I was thinking this morning, as I was walking through this week, how to open up this topic of homosexuality. I want to submit to you guys that the church, by and large, has said, and has continued to say publicly, basically culturally, for the last three decades, we are open to anyone with any struggle. But if you are dealing with homosexuality, this is not a place that you're welcome. Essentially, the church has said that over and over again, and you can actually find, and you can hear the church has basically said, not just that you're not welcome, but there is no forgiveness of sins for you if you are dealing with homosexuality. Where we're going to go this morning is we're going to tackle this issue head on. And why I'm opening this way is, is pointedly for the purpose of saying nothing could be further from the truth. That homosexuality is going to be like any other sin, any other struggle that you and I have. And we're going to look at it in particular, what makes it unique? 
why is it out there? Why are men and women struggling with it? And then we'll kind of look at the fact of what has Jesus done with it? We're going to talk a lot about uh, what homosexuality is, what has caused it, what are statistics for those that deal with it and their life look like. We're going to go all over the map, but essentially I want you guys to hear and know two things. If you can boil down my message, this is what it boils down to, and that's this, that Christ has died for this struggle, and Christ frees one from this struggle. Just like he frees and just like he died for every other struggle that you and I have. Homosexuality is no different, and yet for many of us, we're so confused by it and we're uncomfortable with it, and we have no idea because the church has never said anything about it, nor have we read much about it, nor are we at, at all clear or comfortable with it. And so this morning, my hope for you guys is that we begin to get a little more comfortable, we get a little more clear as to what this issue is in people's lives, why it's there. And then we get a, a clear sense for you and I that Christ has died for this, just like he's died for every other sin, and the church is welcoming and wounding and healing everyone amongst us. And in many ways, I love the imagery of the church as a hospital in which the wounded are healing and bandaging the wounded. <laughs> you and I, as we come here on a Sunday morning, you and I are all struggling. You and I are all a mess and broken in some level and in some sense. And those that are struggling with homosexuality are just as broken as we. So that's kind of my hope for you guys as we go. And the reason why we're going to address this is one the church rarely ever talks about it. The second reason is I think this issue is becoming more and more prevalent in our culture. It wasn't too long ago that Ellen DeGeneres came out on her talk show and announced and came out and said that she was homosexual. The result of that was her show got canceled. The public opinion and the public mass and the media has now shifted and changed and that now to come out does not get your show canceled, but now to come out means in actuality every show is going to have at some level, at some time, some, in a sense, token gay couple. Every movie, every show has some gay character and more than likely that gay character is whimsical, funny, intelligent, and is always portrayed well. Because our culture and our mass media is trying to get this issue and this idea out there as something that is normative, healthy, and shouldn't be dismissed or shouldn't be changed at all. Obviously, we're going to see, what did the scriptures say about it? What did the scriptures say? And I'd say that that issue is no longer just in media, but it is now coming more and more into our very present context today. Um, Those in Austin have now often begun to call College Station Closet Station. And the issue and why I'm saying that is not at all a joke or a humor, but that issue is that this issue, this struggle is amongst us. It is something that a lot of us are struggling with, and it's a time that we actually address it and talk about it. I've kind of been laughing as people have come in this morning, especially for the people that are visiting for the first time. In fact, I find myself doing this every week this semester, saying this is not a normal Sunday morning. Um, this isn't a normal Sunday morning, but this has kind of become normal for us this semester as we kind of tackle tough issues. So last week, last week it was sanctity of life. The week before it was sexuality. We've kind of going over all the, the tough and most challenging issues. And so my hope is not to be controversial. My hope is to give you guys a sense of what the scriptures say, and in light of that, to give a sense of how are we to respond to it. So in light of all that, let's pray, and we'll kind of jump in this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that we are sheep that are, that are wandering, that are broken, that are blind, um, that you have come as a great shepherd, and that you've led us to provision, you've led us to green pastures, you've led us beside quiet waters, you've given us salvation, Lord. And I pray this morning, For those of us that have tasted of your salvation, for those of us that have entered into a relationship with you, that you'd allow us to begin to think clearly about this issue. Um, To not hear what media and mass uh, publications have said, but to see clearly from your scriptures what you've said and how you defined uh, and and designed sexuality, Lord. pray that you'd give us open hearts. I pray for many of us here that are maybe even dealing with this, Lord, that you'd give us open hearts, um, that you'd allow us to hear clearly from your word, um, that you'd allow my words to be yours, um, that you'd allow me to communicate as you see fit. And Father, I pray this morning for those of us who aren't dealing with it, that you would give us a, a greater sense of, of what this struggle looks like, a greater sense of where it came from and why it's there, and, and a greater sense of how to respond to it. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. All right. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Uh, I kind of set this up for you guys already a little bit. Uh, but what does the Bible say? First thing, Christ died for it. 
Two main points this morning. Christ has died for this, and second of all, he's freed us from it. So what is it? What is it that he has died for in particular? What is homosexuality? Um, often it's defined in a bunch of different ways, but essentially it is a, um, a, an attraction and a desire for the same sex that is often eroticized and made sexual. For some, it's simply an identity. For some, it leads to simply experimentation in college, but for some, it becomes a lifestyle that is not just physical, but is emotional and psychological. If you guys remember two weeks ago, we talked about sexuality, that it was not just a physical appetite, but that it was something inclusive of all that we are. And so homosexuality is not just a physical appetite. It is respective to who a person is emotionally. It is respective to who a person is psychologically, how they relate. It is inclusive to all that they are. In fact, as we kind of walk through this this morning, I'm going to argue to you guys that in some sense, homosexuality is more tied to an individual's identity than any other sin struggle out there. That it is really, in a sense, who they have identified themselves to be. It is deep within them, deep not just to a set of physical desires, but something in regards to the way that they interact, the way that they see life, the way that they've moved interpersonally within family and in with relationships. And we're kind of go there, but, but what is it? Uh, our mass media would also say that 10% of American population today is homosexual. I think those statistics are really overinflated. I think our media is really trying to push this as normative, but really uh, better accurate statistics would say that 2 to 3% of America is homosexual. 2 to 3% would articulate, would admit that they are homosexual in orientation or homosexual in lifestyle. So it's not as wide as, as we would begin to think that it is. But not just what is it, but I want to ask you guys, and we're going to go to the scriptures and ask, is it sinful? This is a hotly debated topic. There are those within the church, there are those without the church that are all arguing as to this issue. So I'm going to ask you guys, is it sinful? What do the scriptures say? We're going to start back to Genesis 1, where we started two weeks ago when we talked through the issue of sexuality. If you guys remember Genesis 1, uh, we find God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. For this reason, a man shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Also in chapter 2, we find that the male and female were created physiologically, not to be too specific, but they were physiologically created to be one a penetrator, one a receiver. They were designed for one another. The helper that was suitable for man when man was alone was not another man, but it was one that was complementary but distinct from him, female. Female was created from man, but man and female were distinct and different than one another, but they were designed to be union together in marriage. And that union was meant to be a picture of God. It was meant to bring pleasure. That union also sexually was meant to lead to procreation. And as we look at Genesis 1, it's pretty clear that from what God created and designed intent, homosexuality is a distortion or a move away from what God had created. Genesis 1, God created man in his image, male and female. Male and female physiologically created for one another. A helper suitable to man was female, and yet homosexuality is a, is a union of male and male, relationally, physiologically, in a way that is different than what God had created. In fact, if you look in Leviticus chapter 20, we find this. If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They surely shall be put to death. Leviticus is pretty clear. This is something that was different than what God had designed and different than what God had saw fit. Um, back to Romans 1, as Paul launches off in Romans 1, he says in one eighteen, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Then Paul says a few verses later, he says, For they, humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, and the passage goes on, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Romans 1 is clear, Paul is clear, Genesis 1 is clear that that which is considered in homosexuality is a distortion or a move away from what God originally created and originally called good. 
those that will argue that homosexuality can be supported from the scriptures are going to do gymnastics to try to explain away Romans 1 and Genesis 1. In fact, many will explain Romans 1 is essentially about, in a sense, unconsensual or homosexual rape, and Paul is rebuking that which was prevalent in a Roman culture. But eventually what Paul is saying is, no, 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 it's not, it's not whether it's consensual or inconsequential or inconsensual, it's about whether it's male and female or male and male. Male and male is unnatural. It's beyond the naturally created order that God entailed from Romans 1. You have to do some really uh, uh, gymnastics to get away from some of the passages in, in the scriptures that are rebuking homosexuality, that it is a sin, that it's wrong. It's not what God had created. But even more, and really where I want to go is ask this question, is it the worst sin? <laughs> I think, and in many ways today, modern day, the, the church in their failure has communicated in the way they've gone about and the way that they've talked to the homosexual gay agenda and they've said this and they, that it's come across this way that there's no forgiveness of sins for homosexuality. That it is, in a sense, the chief of all sins. It's the darkest of all sins. And in a sense, Paul will start off in Romans 1.18 and the first thing he goes to is homosexuality. And so the people say, hey, this is the worst thing that, that could have been out there. This is the greatest distortion of evil. And I think the scriptures are clear, though, that that is, that is far, far from the truth. In fact, if you look through the scriptures, Proverbs 6, we find there are a lot of sins that God would call detestable. Proverbs 6, there are six things which the Lord hates. No, no, wait, actually there's seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. The Old Testament says, hey, there are a whole bunch of sins that God hates. Homosexuality any perversion in sexuality, pornography, things we talked about two weeks, God hates it all. It's all, in a sense, a distortion of what God designed. In fact, if you look at Romans 1, he starts off, 118, talking about all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. He starts and gets to homosexuality, but then look at how he finishes the passage. This is where he finishes Romans 1. He says, And just as humanity did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. As Paul goes in Romans 1, he's going to mention homosexuality, but then he quickly moves on and, and just unloads a laundry list of sins. And Paul's point is that all of this is what God has opposed. All of this has brought the wrath of God, and homosexuality does not stand out as distinct or above or worse than any other sin. God is opposed to all of it. And so homosexuality or struggle with that does not remove one from the grace and the mercy of God, just like no other sin removes us from the mercy and grace of God. It stands just like the rest. In fact, I think in many regards, Romans 1 sets you up. Um, In many regards, I think uh, Romans 1 sets you up as he's going through a laundry list of sins. There are those that would have been listening going, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, that is wrong, that's wrong. They're judged, they're wrong, they're evil. And what it does is it sets up the person who's judging all those in Romans 1 that are getting whipped. It sets them up for Romans 2. And here's what Romans 2 says. Paul says this, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, the guy that was sitting there listening to Romans 1 going, "Uh Uh-huh, they're sinful, they're wicked, they're beyond what God has done. Everyone who's doing that, everyone who's shaking their head, nodding, Paul comes right back at them, sets them up for Romans 1 and comes right at their knees in Romans 2 and says this, Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Romans 2 comes back and says, all those that would judge another, you are as guilty as the rest. I mean, in fact, in many regards, it kind of made me think about when we were taking language classes, the Chinese educational system is a little different than the one in America. And some of y'all who have been here a while kind of heard this, but in many regards, teachers don't honor or encourage students very well. The way that they motivate students is they actually shame you. 
And so we would have a teacher who, a student is struggling uh, learning language, and the teacher would just absolutely shame the student in front of everybody. And we'd sit in there, we would just start to heckle and laugh because we thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And what, in a sense, is happening is the teacher is setting up the other students because the moment that they show their laughter, the moment that we would begin to laugh, the next thing we knew, the teacher was coming right at us. <laughs> and it happened every time. As soon as I was beginning to laugh at a fellow student, the teacher would come and let me volunteer next to answer a question, and then it would just tear me apart. And what Paul is doing in Romans 1 is he's setting you up to begin to judge someone else, and the moment you do it, he's got you, and he comes right at your knees. And in regards, I think for many of us, the greatest issue we have is you and I have a faulty sense of self-righteousness. And for many of those that have rebuked and said the homosexuality issue is so far beyond what God has said, they have a value system of sin that has said that your struggle is worse than mine. I am more righteous than you. And Paul comes right at that person and says, you are as guilty as the next. In fact, I think in many ways, I think if you look through the Gospels, where do you see Christ get the most angry? He does not get the most angry with the adulteress, with those that have sexual sins, or with those that have sins with integrity. What he gets really frustrated and really angry with is those that are, in a sense, religious leaders, those that, in a sense, think they are more exalted and more righteous and more prideful than the next. And that's really where Jesus gets angry and gets worked up. And I think Paul sets that kind of person up in Romans 2 as they're judging and as they're nodding in Romans 1. One of the things I want you guys to hear this morning is that there is no worse sin than... Hom- Sorry, no, completely opposite. Homosexuality is no worse sin than any other, all right? Scratch that, they'll come off the recording, all right? Um, so, one of the things I want you guys to see is I think our self-righteousness causes us to judge this. But one of the other things I want you guys to see is I want you guys to get us in a sense... How does someone arrive at homosexuality? Because I think if you get a sense of the causes of it, not only do you move away from self-righteousness, but you begin to move towards them with compassion. So in a sense, what causes it? I'm going to give you guys a few examples. And let me kind of first say this, that some of the reasons I give you guys are not necessarily prescriptive. So I'm going to give you guys a few things that may cause homosexuality, but everyone who has certain experiences does not necessarily move toward homosexuality. But those that are struggling with homosexuality, these are some things we often find in their lives. So first of all, what causes it? Is it a choice? I'd say that no, it is not a choice. I'll be honest, uh, before we landed on this topic and before I started to prep this week, I had never read a book on homosexuality and I never thought much about it. Some of these questions are the ones that I was asking and the ones I was wrestling with and the ones I was really thinking through this week. And everything I read from testimonies to resources to books, no one would say that homosexuality is a choice. No one wakes up one morning and thinks, today I'm going to be homosexual, all right? It doesn't happen that way. And then if it's not a choice, and the next question is, is it genetic? Is there a genetic link that causes or predisposes some people toward homosexuality and a bent toward the same sex sexually? Is it? Is it genetic? Uh, studies are being going on right now, but there's not one conclusive study that would actually link this issue yet to a genetic uh, reason DNA-wise. There's no study that's conclusive saying this is a genetic issue that would predispose certain people toward homosexuality. I'd submit, though, that if one was predisposed genetically toward homosexuality, the issue and the question is irrelevant. Here's why. If you and I were predisposed to murder or predisposed to adultery, that does not make it rationalized okay that you and I would murder or commit adultery. The commands of the scriptures are still clear. And in fact, if there were a genetic link toward murder, adultery, or homosexuality, I think it would fit quite nicely with the Christian doctrine of human depravity. That you and I, according to Ephesians 2.1, are all born dead in our transgressions. We are all children of wrath by nature. We are all, from the very beginning, born hostile to God, bent toward unrighteousness. And so if there is a genetic link toward homosexuality, we haven't found it yet, but even if there were, I'd say it fits pretty well with the way that we would view human depravity, that we are all born evil. None of us are righteous, none of us are good, none of us, um, in a sense, are corrupted by society. We are born wicked, in a sense. That's Christian doctrine of human depravity, and that is distinct from every other world religion. So if it's not a choice, and it's not genetic, what causes it? 
I think one of the main reasons and one of the main things that causes it is environmental reasons or environmental or experiential issues in someone's life. And again, let me say, this is not like if you get a certain set of ingredients, you're going to necessarily always make brownies and have a homosexual person. But there are, in a sense, if someone's struggling with homosexual, there are, in a sense, some, some similarities and some tendencies that we see in their lives. Does that make sense? All right. Here's, here we go. Uh, so what are the environmental reasons? First of all, some would argue, and then I think you see this uh, by trends, that there are certain personality or temperaments that lean or set one up uh, in tendency toward homosexuality. So some of this leads to gender confusion in, a, in, in someone's childhood, for example. So you have a girl who, um, the classic uh, girl kind of drifts toward certain things that would make them tomboyish. That doesn't mean they're going to become homosexual, um, but there are certain personalities and wirings that would move or make someone uh, susceptible to that. Even more likely, though, it's not necessarily in females that are tomboyish, but even more likely, even more stronger, though, we see in cases of guys that would tend toward things that would make them more effeminate, you see a stronger link and a stronger uh, causation towards a move toward homosexuality. Why is that? I think one of the reasons for that is, say a guy doesn't necessarily want to hike, uh, doesn't necessarily want to do a bunch of manly things like hunting. I think our culture is predisposed in a certain way that we are more critical toward a male that would not display stereotypical male things or still stereotypical male personalities or stereotypical male uh, temperaments. And as a result of that, a, a trend begins to develop in their life where uh, some things begin to move into place that would cause and move them toward this, and we'll see some of these other things in a minute. So there are certain things that are personality or temperament reasons or causations. The second would be, um, and one of the most strong likely reasons, is childhood abuse. A, a huge proportion of those that are struggling with homosexuality at some point in the past or in their childhood were abused. It might have been verbal, it might have been psychologically, but often in cases it's often sexual. So at some point in a childhood's past, uh, a sexual violation occurred, and that violation set them up and set them on a path, and we see a far greater likelihood of those that are struggling with homosexuality that they've been abused in the past. Now again, let me say, if someone's been abused in the past, it does not mean they're going to become homosexual. But there, for those that are struggling with that issue, there is a greater causation, there's a greater link in their life where we see this really often. Studies say that 46% of men that are walking in a homosexual lifetime had some uh, childhood sexual uh, violation that occurred in their life. For women, 60% were personally violated or 90% witnessed it either in their own life or in their mom's life, for example. So their mother was abused physically, it was abused within the home, and because of that, because of what they saw or because of what they experienced, it set them up in the midst of some of their experiences for a move toward homosexuality. A few testimonies kind of said this to give you guys a sense of how it could play out. And again, this isn't necessarily prescriptive or determinative of what will play out, but how it can. Saw a few testimonies of a few women that were struggling with homosexuality. And the reason why and what they finally realized in the aftermath of it was that they were violated at some point as a child. And because of that violation, they unconsciously began to move and began to present themselves in ways that would not threaten them anymore by the male race. And so they presented themselves in a way that didn't get masculine attention anymore. So they dressed, they did their hair, they did things in a manner that no longer attracted male attention all in a means to keep themselves safe and secure. And again, not saying that clothes and appearance makes one homosexual, but there are certain things and experiences that can set one up when we begin to see some linkages. Another thing that occurs, and I think one of the most strong reasons for it, is in a parental relationship issue. One of the strongest links we see for those that are walking in a homosexual lifestyle was a breakdown uh, within the parent relationship they had of the same sex. So if it was a woman, it was a breakdown in relationship with her mother. If it was a, a man, it was a breakdown of a relationship with his father. So, for example, we find in men that are struggling with homosexuality, 70% of those men did not have a father at home as they grew up. We find almost uh, in, in severe cases of homosexuality, 100% of those did not have a male figure that was either at home or if he was at home, um, then he was uh, psychologically or emotionally distant or remote. 
And in that breakdown within the same-sex parent, what you end up happening is this. Not finding affirmation, not finding acceptance within a father for a son or for a mother for a daughter. What ended up happening over time is that person begins looking for acceptance and affirmation from the same sex, doesn't find it from their parent, begins looking elsewhere. And in that pursuit elsewhere, at some point, it can become eroticized. And in that move, then homosexuality begins to take shape, begins to take root in a person's life, and they begin moving in that direction. So there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of causes for it. And again, if someone has a certain set of experiences like I've described, it does not necessarily mean that they're going to become homosexual. But for those that are struggling with homosexuality, these are some of the kinds of things we find that have occurred in their life. And why do I share all that? One, I think for for many of us, we're really confused by homosexuality. So I want to give you guys a little sense of what it is and and how it's developed in someone's life. Second of all, I think it begins to move us from self-righteousness to compassion. That for many of these people that are struggling with it, there's a lot of that's occurred early on in their lives that for that should be meriting our compassion and not our judgment. And what I want to begin to do is redirect our emotion, redirect our, our reception of those that are struggling with this. So how do you and I respond? If this is what causes it, where do you and I go? Uh, for those of you who may be struggling with this issue, I'm going to talk to you guys in a minute in particular as we go forward. But for those of us who are not, let me say this. I think the church has failed miserably today with this issue. Uh, that for many of those that are struggling with homosexuality, they think the church, one, won't welcome them. Two, they think the church won't even offer them salvation. And three, if they were to ever to be open and real with their struggle, everyone would either laugh or just absolutely judge, criticize them, and reject them. And so for us as a church, we've got to begin to respond in a different manner. And how do we begin to respond? My, my uh, challenge to us is that we'd become, we'd become the kind of community that would open ourselves up humbly and compassionately. And so for some of us, gentlemen particularly, we've got to become far more aware of some of the jokes we make. The reality of this struggle is a secret struggle, but for reality for us men, we, we make jokes about things we don't understand, and we make jokes about things amongst people that we have no idea who could be struggling with something. And the result of that is we create a community that for some, they cannot be transparent and they cannot be open with us. The second thing I want to challenge us too is that we would be the kind of people that would not just put our jokes down, but we would put our stones of judgment down. Uh, let me ask you guys point blank, homosexuality or not, are there certain sins that you think are more sinful than others? And if you do, if you can actually identify those, let me ask you this. Are those sins that you've identified as worse than others ones that you do not struggle with? Why is it often that our judgment scale of what is really sinful often places us more self-righteously over someone else? (laughs) Why is that our, in a sense, our sin scale always favors us and condemns someone else? Because you and I, at our very nature, are self-righteous. And so one of the things I want to challenge us to do is that we begin to realize that at the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely even. There is no one more inferior and there is no one more superior than the next. We all come absolutely broken and absolutely in need of a Savior. And if that's the case, it begins to change the way that you and I respond to other people's sin struggles because we are all broken. And apart from what Christ has done, we would not be who we are now. And so if some people are struggling with this, let me say we've got to begin to open ourselves up because this is, this is a struggle that is different than some but is no different than others and that Christ has died for it. And not only has Christ died for it, but that he also frees one from it. And that's where we're going to go next. So that for those of us who may be struggling with it, what do we do and how do we respond to those of y'all who may be struggling with it? First thing I'd say is that Christ has died for your struggle. Christ has paid the penalty for it. There is salvation available to you just like to everyone else. That your struggle, your temptations, your weaknesses are no different and no farther out of the reach of what Christ can do than the next of us. And so uh, the second thing is that not only has he paid the penalty for your sin, but he's removed the power of it. He can not only pay the penalty for it, not only did he die for it, but he can free you from it. 
you guys may have heard the story this week from uh, SeaWorld. Uh, Shamu apparently uh, took someone out. Uh, there was a performance, and apparently Shamu thought one of the performers, uh, one of the workers was a toy, and um, not to laugh at it, but the person died because of it. Um, and as you go in the aftermath of this, if you follow the story, what's going to end up happening is that SeaWorld is going to have to pay damages to this person's family. But the justice system and our society and our culture will not allow SeaWorld just to pay damages. SeaWorld is going to be forced to create an environment and a situation that Shamu can't do it again, right? In many regards, I think many of us think that Christ came and he paid the debt, he paid the damages for our sin, but many of us still think that we're swimming in the tank with Shamu. That in a sense, Christ has removed the, the penalty of sin, but he's done nothing to change our relationship to sin and that you and I are still, in a sense, owned by it. One of the things I want you guys to hear, whether you're struggling with homosexuality or you're struggling with any other sin, is not only that Christ has died for it, but he's broken the power of it in your life. That you don't have to be owned by this and controlled by it, but there is freedom. In fact, one of the first things I want to ask you guys as we look at the issue of homosexuality is the question, is change possible? Some would say that salvation isn't even possible. I'd say that's ridiculous. That is as much of a distortion of the gospel as there can be. But if salvation is available, then is change possible? There are usually three answers that first would say that homosexuality is not a sin, so why change? In fact, we have some denominations in the Christian church today that are actually appointing and putting into place gay clergy. Um, often, a lot of the denominations that have, in a sense, turned uh, an eye from the scriptures and have embraced tradition or embraced culture or opinion that have said, hey, the scriptures are not inherent, they are not true, um, and they're not a voice for today. And so they've dismissed some of the passage on homosexuality, said that this is not a sin, and they've now begun to appoint gay clergy. Some would say, no, no, this is a sin, but the reality is change isn't possible. And to that I'd say, well, if, it's not a, if it is a sin but change isn't possible, where is the hope in that? At best, what you have then is frustrated chastity. Um, and that is not the kind of life I think Christ would have for us. I'd argue that homosexuality is a sin. If you're struggling with it, Christ has paid the penalty for it, and he can free you from it, and change is possible. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, we find this, Do not be deceived, neither the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, will inherit the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the church has stopped at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and they've not read on. <laughs> but look at what Paul says, verses 10 and 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says the homosexuals, those struggling with that sin or any other sexual sin, have forgiveness of sins and they can be changed, and change is possible. In fact, not just homosexuality, but in Romans 7, Paul articulate his own struggle with sin. He says, hey, I know I've trusted Jesus Christ. I know that he's uh, commanded me to a new lifestyle, but in reality, I know that what I should be doing, but I just can't do it. He says, the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He says, hey, I know what I should be doing, but I can't find the freedom. I can't find uh, freedom from the sin that's just controlling me. And Paul says, hey, I'm a wretched man. I cannot find freedom from this. And then he finally, the solution comes in the very next chapter, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul says, hey, in my own experience, I realized that I now knew what I was called to do, but I could not find the freedom. I could not find the ability to actually do it. I kept doing what I did not want to do. I kept doing what I knew I shouldn't do. And he finally says, I'm a wretched man and I am in captivity. I'm controlled by sin. Chapter 8 comes along as the solution to that problem. And the solution is that the Spirit of God has set you and I free from sin. Uh, you and I sing, we often sing one of my favorite songs that says, The sting of death is gone. First Corinthians chapter 15, the sting of death is gone. The reality is the sting of death is not yet gone. 
1 Corinthians 15 says the sting of death is gone, but it is a current proclamation of a future reality. We sing now as if this is a reality, but it's not yet a reality. We sing if it's, it's a reality now because it's so sure in the future. So it's not that we're singing a song that's wrong, but we're singing something that's so sure in the future that we almost sing as if it's true now. But if you've ever been at a funeral, you know that this thing of death is still here and it's still now. But the hope is that that thing will one day be removed. And for you and I that have been forgiven of our sins, the reality is that we are still struggling with our sins, the same sins that we've been forgiven from. Christ and, and Romans and Paul will say that we've been freed from sin, but we're still struggling. But change is possible. And we're going to try to walk you guys through that. How is change possible in the midst of struggle that continues? So that's kind of where we're going to go. If change is possible, then the question will be, is it needed? If change is possible, do you and I need to change, especially if we're struggling with homosexuality? And I would submit, absolutely you do. Why do you need to change? I'd argue the reason why you need to change is the results of this lifestyle are are absolutely catastrophic. Not only is it a sin, but it is something Christ has redeemed. It is something that Christ will free you from. Change is possible like it's possible from any other sin, but it's especially necessary because this lifestyle, almost unlike any other, will absolutely kill you. Statistics tell us that those that follow in this lifestyle are one and a half times more likely for depression and anxiety. Those that struggle in this lifestyle are not just more likely for depression and anxiety, but they're also more likely to abuse substances like alcohol and drugs. Not only that, but they're far more likely to experience um, a high, higher rate of suicide. And one of the reasons why for that, I think, is um, or even not just suicide, but even we find that only 1% of those that practice a lifestyle of homosexuality actually die of old age. 1% of those struggling with homosexuality and actually live that lifestyle and go beyond the struggle to actually living and acting in it, 1% of those actually live a full life and die of old age. They all die from uh, disease causes. In fact, we find statistics tell us that the average lifespan of a homosexual who's actually practicing is 20 times shorter than that of a heterosexual. Now again, there are as many sinful things wrong with homosexuality as there are with heterosexuality. Heterosexuality can get as distorted and as messed up as the rest. But there's a proclivity in homosexuality to some issues, and the reason why is, I think, partly because of promiscuity. Average of those that are practicing in homosexuality is that they will have 49 sexual partners. 10% of those that are living in that lifestyle will have 500 sexual partners. And because of promiscuity, you have a 78% rate of those that have STDs. And because of the STDs, they have a shorter lifespan. And so in reality, what you have here is a deadly lifestyle. The reason why change is needed is because this lifestyle will kill you. Um, flat out to the point. Um, the other reason why I think change is necessary is not just because of where this is headed, but I think there's a misunderstanding of freedom. Webster's will define freedom in two different ways, or free in two different ways. It says free is the absence of necessity, coercion, constraint, and choice or action, or it's not costing or charging anything. There's two definitions, two senses of freedom. One is that it is a removal of constraint of choice. The second is it's a removal of cost. In two different ways, you can define and explain something as free. I think for the most part, our, our world has said this, that you can live free from the constraint of God's commands and find a life that is free without cost. Check that out. Our, our culture has said you can live free from the constraint of God's commands and find and experience a life that comes free without cost. The reality is God has designed life that that can't happen. In fact, that's what he says in Romans chapter 6. Paul says this, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says, hey, you come to Jesus Christ, there was a whole past lifestyle you had, you realize that that is wrong now, and he says, if you continue to live freedom from the constraint of what God has designed life to be, if you continue to live free from that, what benefit are you going to find? Paul's point is you receive no benefit, but what you receive is now a cost. Because freedom of constraint does not come freedom of cost. 
fact, he goes on and says, for the outcome of those things is death. Here is the price that is paid from a freedom of constraint. If you live however you want to live, and you live different than what God has commanded, you will not find a life that comes without cost. You can choose to live freely from his constraints, but you will find a life that is not free of cost. He goes on further, he says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. And for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God has rigged life. And he's rigged life in such a way that you can either choose to walk with him and find out all that he's designed life to be, or you can choose to have autonomy, live outside of the way he's designed life to be lived, and find something that will come with great cost. In fact, a couple, uh, about a month ago, Marcy and I watched a movie called Thank You for Smoking. It was a really interesting movie. It's about a guy that's, in a sense, a PR marketer for big tobacco. His job, day in and day out, is to uh, protect the image of big tobacco cigarette companies. And his job is to fend off the accusations and those that would try to tarnish the reputation of big tobacco. So at one point, he's actually in a uh, talk show. There's a, a couple people who are talking about the harms of, of cigarette and tobacco on health. And there's a little child who's 15 who's, I think, already gone through cancer and through chemo. And he's got a shaved head. And they're trying to argue that big tobacco is killing this teenager. And his response back is this, why would I want to kill the teenager? We would, big tobacco would far more prefer him to stay alive and addicted than to kill him. And so why would we be pushing and marketing a product that's deadly? All right. The reality and the, the craziness of that kind of position is even he, along with two other people that had jobs like his, formed a group called, they, they called the Mod Squad. It was Merchants of Death Squad. All right. It was a guy that was, uh, the main character was uh, peddling tobacco. You had a guy that was uh, uh, trying to protect NRA, Rifle Association. You had someone that was trying to protect alcohol. And they're trying to maintain the, the, uh, a glowing reputation of those three industries in the mainstream media and in the world. And in order to do that, they're having to actually peddle and protect a product that kills. In reality, I think the homosexual agenda is doing the same. They're having to peddle and make normative and healthy a lifestyle that is absolutely deadly. And the reality is you can have freedom of constraint, but you will not have freedom of cost. Every revolution brought a freedom of constraint of government, but it came at great cost, and that was bloodshed. Jesus Christ gave you freedom from sin and from the penalty and the power of sin, but it came at great cost. It came at his shed blood. The freedom of constraint always comes at the freedom of the cost. And the question I want to ask you this morning, not just regarding homosexuality, but regarding whatever you're living in, and the question is this, how much will you continue to pay for your freedom of constraint? How much of your ability and autonomy to live however you want, how much of that is worthwhile enough to you, and how much cost will you continue to pay? In fact, one of the questions we, that pops up as we begin to talk about freedom is a topic we're going to hit next week. Kind of give you guys a preview of where we're going. Um, if you're freedom to choose and you have a freedom constraint, then the question is, how free are you? Um, can you choose and really live however you want to live or has God determined everything? That's actually where we're headed next week. So we're going to end before spring break with the issue of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Nice, light, heart, nice, light, easy topic right before you guys go off to beaches and wherever. All right, so that's where we're going next week. Just kind of a little bit of a preview. So I think it really fits in. If you've been, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, are you free to live however you want? How do you answer that question? Why would you answer that question? Yes or no? Um, second of all, would be uh, not just that I think this lifestyle is deadly, that change is necessary, but also because of the reasons I think there's a distortion of the way that you and I understand freedom. You and I have bought into a culture that has said that you can have freedom of constraint without freedom of cost, and that is a flat-out lie. Freedom of constraint always comes at cost, and that's the issue. All right, so if change is possible and change is needed, how do we change? Uh, not just for the homosexual, but for anyone struggling with sin, for you and I, and for all of us that are sitting here today, you and I are messed up wrecks at times, and we're all struggling so how do we deal and how do we move and how do we find victory and freedom? I think it first starts at the cross. 
this is as clear and as basic as it comes. You and I don't get our lives fixed, and then we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I come to the cross of Jesus Christ, dirty, messed up, and broken, and he begins to change us from the inside out. If you're struggling with certain things this morning, let me assure you that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing that you've done that, that causes him to stiff-arm you, that if you're willing to come to him and you're willing to bend a knee and you're willing to say, I am messed up, I am broken, and I need someone to save me and fix me and take away the penalty of the transgressions that I've made, he'll save you, he'll fix you, he'll receive you into a relationship with him. There's nothing you have to do. It's an absolutely free gift. And the reason why it's an absolutely free gift is there's nothing you can do to earn it and there's nothing you can do to merit it and there's nothing you can do to qualify yourself for his favor. He gives it to you surely and freely based on the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin or you're struggling with homosexuality and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, the only hope I have for you is to begin at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you've not begun there, then you're going to have a bunch of uh, behavior management techniques and a bunch of self-help books that are going to try to give you a bunch of reasons and principles to change your behavior. But at best, you're just manipulating and changing your clothes on the outside and your heart is still the same. And Christ comes in not just to change the externals, but he wants to change the internals and begin to give you a new heart, a new passion, a new desire, a new identity. And that's where we go next. Not only does he forgive you and redeem you from the penalty of your sin, but he redeems you from the power of your sin and he gives you a brand new identity. You are no longer who you once were. You come messed up, broken. He declares that you are righteous and he begins to transform you and he begins a reclamation project in your life that it begins in the moment you trust Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. Paul will say in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When you trust in Jesus Christ, your life is tied intimately to his death and also to his life. You are no longer who you once were. In fact, regarding homosexuality, I thought this quote was really, really helpful. For most homosexuals who accept Christ and the new life he offers, their true change isn't so much behavior-focused, attractions-focused, or demon-focused. The change comes not based on externals. Instead, their true change is heart-focused. This is a change of identity from the inside out, and that identity change will result in a behavior change. For those struggling with homosexuality or for those struggling with any sin whatsoever, where change begins is not in the externals. It's not about managing your behaviors and fixing all of the right actions, but it's about a change of the heart and a change of identity. Um, and that change of identity leads to a change of behavior and a change of action. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of that was uh, of a pastor that gave this to me when I was in college. He talked about uh, when the moment you trust Jesus Christ, it is like you are a caterpillar emerging out of a cocoon. And that as you've trusted in Jesus Christ and, and the payment of your sins has been made, then you become like a butterfly. But the reality for many of us is that we still think that we're caterpillars. You and I still think that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed about who we are in our relationship with Christ. And so you and I continue to crawl and continue to struggle just like we always did. But the reality is he's begun a reclamation project on your life. He's redesigned you and he's rebuilt you. And you are now to live in a whole different way because you are no longer who you once were. If you go to an AA group, you'll start off saying, I, Hi, my name is whoever and I am an alcoholic. The reality is if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that is not your identity. That is not how you introduce yourself. You are not identified and you are not defined by your sin struggle. If you're struggling with pornography, you are not a pornographist. It's not your main struggle. If it is your main struggle, then it's not your identity. You are not identified by what you struggle with. But I think for many of us, we so get our identity where we struggle. We so get our identity where we are weak. That's not how we're to be identified. You are identified with Jesus Christ. It is indivisible. It is indistinguishable to see yourself from him anymore. 
the very imagery of baptism, when we talk about baptizing someone, the very imagery was of a cloth dipped into dye. And it has emerged out of the dye that the cloth was absolutely changed from a different color so that you could no longer see what once was because it's been changed, it's been baptized, it's been identified with Jesus Christ. That's the imagery, that's the idea that if you've been identified with Jesus Christ, you're no longer who you once were, and so a new lifestyle becomes possible. And not only are you identified with Jesus Christ, but you now become identified with his family. You're now invited and you're now to embrace a new family. In reality, though, for those of you who may be struggling with homosexuality, the, the great difficulty is that is that the church, the body, the family of Jesus Christ has for the longest time appeared so judgmental and that you have so much built up distrust that some of y'all, let me submit to y'all and let me ask y'all just to start anew with us and give us a fresh chance. For those of y'all that are here, if you're not struggling with it, if someone comes out and admits to you that they're struggling with it, the place that you begin is humility and you begin in compassion and you bring acceptance and affirmation to them as who they are. And that if they're in Jesus Christ, not only is that sin paid for, but they have a chance to change and that's your affirmation and that's your encouragement. And so if you're struggling with um, homosexuality or if you're struggling with any other sin, let me submit to you guys that you will never change and you will never get it done and figured out by yourself. You desperately need the community of Jesus Christ and not just the identity that he's provided you, but the community and the family that's going to walk with you through it. And that family sometimes is really messed up and as broken as the rest. And we can be dysfunctional and we can be imperfect, but let me ask y'all to give us a chance and admit and walk in and have some vulnerability with us. In reality, though, for some of y'all in particular, if you're struggling with homosexuality, let me say this, though, that you do need the community of Jesus Christ, but that community generically may be limited. If you're struggling with homosexuality, there are some causations and there are some things in your past more than likely that are incredibly deep and you may not even recognize or know or be conscious of them. And so as a light of that, one of the things that you're going to need to do also is I encourage you guys, if you're going to need to go through some counseling. You're going to need someone that has a little bit better trained eye and a little bit more education that's going to be able to help you process and begin to move through this because before you can begin to change and be transformed and begin to find victory and freedom, you're going to ne- may necessarily need to address go through some counseling, pull some things out, take a look at it, and begin to process through that. And that is not wrong. Um, in fact, I think a lot of us probably, it would be incredibly healthy for us at some point to go through some counseling. Whenever you guys get married, at some level, a lot of y'all will go through what's known as premarital counseling. It's counseling in a sense. Uh, there's a lot that's going to get pulled out, a lot that's going to be talked through, and it's not shameful. It's incredibly helpful because there's a lot of things in your life as you step into marriage that you don't realize by the way that you interact with parents, about what you thought was normative in a family. And someone comes in and realizes as they're engaged to you and they begin to look at your family and they begin to say, hey, your family's not normal. <laughs> and that's not healthy. And that's the first you've ever heard of it. And that's beginning to come out in premarital counseling as, as another couple along with a spouse or a fiance is helping you begin to look at those things and address those. And it's the same thing with homosexuality. There's some things that you may think are normative. And maybe as you've walked through college and had roommates, you begin to realize, hey, my, my, my past, my background, some of the things I've walked through are really different than some of my friends. And in reality, you're maybe getting a suspicion of that. And what you may need to do is go through some counseling and have someone that's trained to help begin to help you begin to pull those things out and begin to address them and work through them. Because unless you address them, work through them, and are healed from them, you're not going to be able to move on and begin to get changed. The last thing I'd say is not just a counselor. You need to go through a Christian counselor because ultimately change comes not through a bunch of counseling techniques, but it comes through the Spirit of God. How does normative and lasting change happen? It doesn't come through a bunch of self-help books. It doesn't come as you get work harder and try harder, but it comes as you learn to depend upon the Spirit of God. The moment that you trusted in Jesus Christ, not just where you identify with Jesus and had a new identity, but he placed his Spirit within you so that you have a growing new desire and a growing new ability to walk with God. A battle with homosexuality or a battle with any other sin is not a battle you wage in and of your own resources, but you wage it by the Spirit of God that begins 
break within you a new set of desires, affections, attractions, and also a new ability to overcome and fight sin. For some of y'all, y'all are getting beat down by certain struggles, and the reality is you're continuing to try to fight them in your own strength, and you are losing mightily. Let me encourage you that what you need to begin to learn to do is you need to learn to walk by the Spirit and find the Spirit's influence and ability to help you find victory. And if you don't know how to do that, let me encourage you guys to jump into a Bible study, begin to jump into the community, begin to come talk to me. I'd love to begin to talk to you guys, and we're going to do this week in, week out as we move forward, that it is the Spirit of God that allows and provides change. The only kind of change that comes apart from Christ is, in a sense, uh, manipulating wrinkles, changing clothes, is a bunch of external behavior management, but it is not a transformation from the inside out. And the way that one changes is not by managing the externals and working inward, it's by a change of heart identity that moves outward by the Spirit of God that begins to break out and begin to change the way that you think, the way that you relate, and the way that you walk life out. My hope for you guys as we kind of walk through this issue, it's in many regards culturally a really controversial one, is you begin to get a sense a little bit more clearly about what it is, how and why some might be struggling with it, so that we become a community that begins to address, respond, and invite men and women into our family in a way that's completely different than what our culture has seen of the church so far. This is an issue that is no more different than the next, and if you guys have a little bit clearer sense of it, I think you and I can begin to respond differently. But for those of us who aren't struggling with it, let me challenge us again that the foot of the cross, the ground is level. You and I have a bent toward self-righteousness and a bent toward evaluating certain people's struggles as worse than ours, and we've got to stop that. And we've got to begin to respond humbly to those that are struggling with things that we may not even understand and begin to listen and begin to be a friend. And for those of us who are struggling with sin and with a reminder that Christ has paid that penalty, let me also remind you that Christ frees you from it. And I don't know where you are, I don't know what you're struggling with, but let me remind you that Christ has brought you not just a penalty for that sin that's been removed, but also he's broken the power and the captivity of it. And you may struggle, though, for a lifetime. Change is possible, but change is not final until we're in the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 to 23, he says this, We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the redemption of our body. Here's the point. Homosexuality, any struggle we have, change is possible. Ultimate change and great victory is absolutely possible, and you should have great hope and great expectation. But do not move your hope and expectation for change all the way to the point that you think it becomes easy and that you think it's a completely done and finalized deal today and in this lifetime. The, the proclamation project that Christ begun at your life at the cross, he will finish it when you're in his presence, but until then, you are a work in progress, and therefore, as a work in progress, we are all flawed, we are all working and in process and trying to move forward, but we're all messed up and we're all moving forward together. And the thing I want to encourage you, though, is that change is possible, but you are going to experience groaning. You're going to have to continue to fight, and it's not going to be easy. But that is the hope that you can change. And as you change, we begin to change together and begin to walk together as a community and as a family. So that's my hope for you guys. Let me pray for us, and then we'll break off this morning. Father God, I give you great thanks that you redeemed us from all sins, that there's nothing that bars us from your presence as long as we come under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those of us who may be here and who may think that we are so far from you, whether we've already trusted in you or not, and I pray that you'd remind us that there's nothing that can bar us from you, that the love of Christ reaches beyond anything that we could imagine that we've done and comes right in and loves us immensely. It was the adulteress that the men and women wanted to judge and to stone, and yet when none could stone them because none were perfect, you didn't stone her either. And you extended grace and you extended mercy, and I pray that you would allow us to find grace and mercy in your presence, that we would have boldness to approach you, and I pray that for many of us in the midst of whatever we may be dealing with, I pray that you'd give us a community, that you'd give us a small group, that you'd give us one or two individuals, even if at that, that we'd find a safety, we would find a place that we could be honest, that we could be vulnerable, that we could be transparent, and we could move into the family of God as well. 
Father, I pray that you begin to transform us and that you would give us greater hope today. That our life and our, and our victory and our, and our battle with sin would look different today than it did yesterday. That you would begin to move us with a hope of victory. And I pray in the midst of our struggle that you would give us a present longing again for a day in which we'll be in your presence and you will finally, for once and for all, remove the sting of death and remove the sting and power of sin. But until then, Lord, I pray that you give us great victory, great, great hope, great confidence, great willingness to battle and to press towards you, Lord. And we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys, thanks for coming, and we'll see you guys next week. Free lunch as well. Thanks, you guys.